Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus only it is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting legal tax or investment advice please consult with a professional specializing in these areas regarding the applicability of this information to your situation all things finance and business leading you to success at work at home and in life it's the dr doug ramsey show and now here's your host dr doug ramsey Welcome to the Dr. Doug Ramsey Show. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Ramsey, broadcasting live from the Mojo 5 studios in the studio with me, as always, producer Ron Phillips. Good morning, Ron. Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Good thing I wasn't flying this week. You've been uh, you've been up in the air lately? <laughs> I have not. Uh, we were just talking about that. No, I haven't flown in a couple of years now. So. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's jump right into uh, old Spirit Airlines. Spirit uh, doesn't quite have the spirit these days. Uh, headline right from uh, ABC News, a mix of tears and screams from Spirit passengers as canceled flights continue. On the sixth day in a row of canceled and delayed Spirit Airlines flights, the help desk at the Myrtle Beach International Airport was full of emotion Friday as passengers in desperate situations pleaded and begged. Man, I wish we had a video of that, Ron. That'd be pretty. Uh, oh, wild I'm sure to there's see. one out there on TikTok somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Spirit canceled more than 400 flights Thursday and around 300 Friday. The company CEO said since they canceled less Friday, they are moving in the right direction. Well, I don't know. Ask those passengers. Have you ever flown Spirit, Doug? Uh, I have not, and I never will. I have flown them one time, and I never will again. So. Their model is they give you a really cheap seat, right? Kind of like a yep. cr- uh, cruise. Yep. Going on the cruise, you get your room really cheap, but then you got all the add-ons, right? Yes, everything is an add-on. All your luggage is an add-on. If you want something to eat, something to drink, it's all an add-on. And the thing that I found humorous about it are the seats are more like park benches. They're very <laughs> cheap. And <laughs> the tray table. Yeah. So if you can visualize for those listening on the radio, an iPhone 12. Yeah. When you pull down that little tray table, that's about the tabletop size. No way. Yeah. It's it's it is the cheap way to go, no question about it. And you know when they start canceling flights, those people who fly Spirit lose their minds. Yep. 
Yep. Well, we'll come back to the uh, duct tape incident here after I get through this Spirit article. Spirit Airlines President and CEO Ted Christie confirmed that our plan to recover from the current operational disruption is working. A spokesperson for the airline said, This week's cancellations stem from a month's worth of tough operating conditions in July. What started with weather and its associated delays led to more and more crew members getting dislocated and being unable to fly their assigned trips. Ultimately, the number of crews facing those issues outpaced our crew scheduling department's capacity for getting them back in place. Sonia Patino is one of those passengers and was expected to fly from Dallas to Myrtle Beach Thursday evening. One full day later, she finally checked into her hotel. We didn't even want to travel anymore. We were like, let's just go home. But we have a very important reunion in Wilmington, so we decided we had to look for other options, she said. Her wait began at 12.30 p.m. Thursday in Dallas after learning her spirit flight to Myrtle Beach was canceled. She said her wait was longer than most because she speaks Spanish. Well, that would be a little twist to the old spirit debacle. We had to sit there and wait for the one person who could speak Spanish, she said. About five hours later, she was given American Airlines tickets, but nothing more for the wait. They just changed it and said, from this point forward, you have to talk to American Airlines for whatever you need. ABC 15 reached out to Spirit to find out what they were doing for the passengers. And the spokesperson said they're issuing flight credit hotel vouchers, or refunds, but what they offer depends on each guest's individual circumstance. Uh, Maybe that's how loud they scream. That could be... How much of a Karen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Sonia finally got to Myrtle Beach at 1 a.m. on Friday, but she was late for a rental car by then. The office was closed, and we had to wait outside the airport until they opened the rental office, she said. We're just exhausted, super tired. We didn't eat until 7 in the morning the next day, and we're a little angry. Her flight back to Dallas is still with Spirit Airlines, is expected to leave this Monday. She's hoping it's all sorted out by then. The full statement from Spirit Airlines reads, Late yesterday, Spirit Airlines President and CEO Ted Christie confirmed that our plan to recover from the current operational disruption is working. Yesterday, our cancellation rate improved. And it's on track to improve further today. While we never want to cancel flights and inconvenience our guests, this is a step in the right direction. Christian said he expects Spirit's cancellation rate to continue to improve over the weekend, resuming normal operations by the middle of next week. Yeah, they said they were going to hit normal operations by the end of this past week, so that didn't work. Christie went on to explain that this week's cancellation stemmed from a month's worth of tough operating conditions in July. Uh, we kind of, they've repeated some of that. Our primary objective right now is taking care of our guests and team members and getting our operations back to where we want it to be. To our guests, I'm truly sorry. Sorry, We spent years investing in the reliable on-time experience you've come to expect with Spirit. And this week we fell short. We're going to do everything we can to earn back your loyalty. Spirit continues to take care of guests impacted by cancellations by offering reaccommodations. So you were talking about uh, another 
person, Ron, that uh, was having a flying debacle of their own uh, that flies every week. Yeah, American Airlines. Yeah, so Americans got similar issues. Oh yeah, and, and it's not uh, not really just spirit related. I, they're trying to get pilots, more crew. When these delays hit, they run past their uh, work hours, and then they've got to take a siesta. So, lots of problems for airlines. You know, a lot of it, and you said it right before the show, is the furloughs that happened. Yeah. Right. You trying fur- to get people to come back or find qualified people now, you know. Yeah. And a lot of people that got furloughed found new lines of work, new lines of employment, and they may have lost certifications and need to get rechecked out, whatever it happens to be, uh, to come back into the airline industry if they even want to come back into it. So lots of problems there in the old airline industry. So here's an interesting story. Let me see if I can dig it up here. Michael Chen, food blogger. Let's talk about Bucky's. So if you're not familiar with Bucky's, they're all over the state of Texas. When you've got the long, you know, four hour ish drives, they put them in spots where it's perfect time for a break. And they're well-known for the cleanest restrooms anywhere. And the concept's great. They took the truck stops. We talked about Bucky's a little bit before. They kind of took the truck stop concept. And took the trucks away. Took the trucks away (laughs) and made it first-class accommodations and then first-class services and then food and drink offerings. So this Mike Chen, he's a food blogger with more than 3.7 million followers on a strictly dumpling YouTube channel. Chen was born in China, but raised in the Midwest, where his parents ran Chinese buffet restaurants, giving him a front row seat to the food business business from an early age. Late in life, Chen had jobs in finance and digital strategy before becoming a full-time eater. I'm kind of a full-time eater. I don't know that that, uh, that's changed. (laughs) That qualifies you to be a blogger. I I guess so. Recently, he moved from Seattle to North Texas, where he's made a quick made quick work of acclimating to Texas cuisine. Last week, the 40-year-old headed south to Central Texas, where he had a fried chicken sandwich in Austin, before waking up pre-dawn to stand in line in the rain for Snow's Barbecue in Lexington. This week's video, and this is out of the Dallas Observer, however, was all about the best little gas station in the universe— Bucky's. He feasted at the new Braunfels location with seemingly no regard for calorie or money. Surprisingly, we learned a few things about the place we thought we already knew uh, so much about. Sometimes it takes, well, no regard to calories or money to really size a place up. Chen committed to eating all his meals and then some from Bucky's for 24 hours. And here's what we learned. All right, so here we go. Headline number one, order hot food from the computer kiosk and skip the pre-made station. So they've got computer kiosks set up that kind of face the kitchen prep area, and they can actually make stuff on the fly for you based on what you're punching in the computer. And then also in Bucky's, they've got a couple of hot stations that are set up where they got brisket sandwiches, burritos, and and some other pre-made stuff, and they're under heat lamps, so they 
they're staying pretty warm. Throughout all the burritos and sandwiches Chen ate, the one thing that really stood out was that the food coming out of the kitchen is much better than the ready-made grab-and-go station. So even though it may take a few minutes more, use the computer screens to build your own sandwiches, burritos, and whatever else. All right, add jalapenos to everything. This is tip number two. Chen added jalapenos to every sandwich he ordered. It was a natural move for him. His hand always easily and naturally swiped to the jalapeno button. It's silly that someone who grew up in the Midwest had to make that point. All right, next tip. Never, ever forget the sauce. I actually knew this one, but be sure to grab sauce packets or containers before leaving. Chen awkwardly chomped through some sawdust-esque brisket. Ever had one of their turkey sandwiches? He asked. I pity the fool who learned how dry they are on Interstate 35 going 80 miles an hour. Now, Ron, have you been to Bucky's very often? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we have one up here near us now. Yeah, and it kind of rings true. I I like that sauce uh, idea there. And I, I can't tell you. We'll, we'll make the pit stop, grab something, and then eat in the car on the way down to meetings in Houston and on the way back from Houston, same deal. Uh, for me, Bucky's is almost like going to a movie theater when you buy <laughs> right. food there. It's not that it's expensive. It's just that they have such a selection is that you have to run through there. And, you know, if you're in a hurry, don't go into Bucky's. But you have to run through there. And then, of course, you, if you're hungry, you pick one of every damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then they have all their private label, yep. you know, candy and snack wall that runs. Correct. What is that? Probably 30 feet long, oh, 30, if, 35 if feet. not more, yeah. And it's just floor to ceiling or as, you know, as high as you can reach. And, uh, yeah, they've got everything. Well, what's cool about Bucky's, and I don't mean to take you off track with your, your comments there, is that it's like, a, it's like half Walmart and half just con- huge convenience store. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, and what traps you, too, if you come in one end, you walk through their kind of gift and merchandise area. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's... Bucky's branded everything in there, and it's you're thinking grandkids, you're thinking kids, thinking stuff for yourself, and all of a sudden, you know, you got an armful of it's like the souvenir, the souvenir store to beat souvenir stores, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. So I don't know if you remember Stucky's, vaguely, yeah, vaguely. So those were truck stops on the highway. I remember stopping at a couple of times. Boy, that was old school. Way back, you know, Southern California. You're going out to Palm Springs, and there's one, and they were kind of scattered around. And what they have the uh, pecan logs or whatever, and a couple other things <laughs> that they were pretty famous for. And yeah. they kind of went downhill, and not a whole lot of money got reinvested in the infrastructure, and they got worn out looking and. No, no new thought. Well, uh, I think it's the daughter uh, of the founder. She's gone in there and kind of revitalized the Stucky's concept and, you know, taking some similar ideas and, and just kind of reinvigorating the whole experience. Now, Stucky, Stucky's allowed trucks, though, didn't they? Yeah. That was a truck stop. Yeah. Yeah. But Bucky's does not. And I've never in one place in my life seen so many gas pumps. Yeah, it's amazing. 
Bucky's probably has 200 gas pumps. Yeah. It's nuts. I mean, they just, they buy up a bunch of acreage right on the side of the freeway. They make sure they have good ingress and egress, you know, jumping on and off the freeway. And where they don't have it, they work it into the plans with the city. And then they, you know, fix the uh, exit ramp. So it's super easy to get to it. And you look for that big pole sign of the beaver way up on the top and you can see and you can see it for miles yeah yeah yeah. so and then they have all the billboards (laughs) leading up to it you know 15 miles 10 miles till five miles till so it's a big countdown for the experience so all right next uh next tip here change your gloves if you go from cleaning to handling food this is a, a tip for a worker there at bucky's Bucky's is sort of known for its cleaning list, so as a Texan, this was as hard to swallow as that dry brisket. But Chen watched a crew member use a broom, clean things, then stuff a sandwich into a container without ever changing gloves. Like gloves don't get dirty. Save a brisket's life. Since Chen's brisket was exposed to whatever was on that broom's handle and who knows what else, Jen wanted to microwave it before eating in order to make the germs or in order to nuke the germs. I don't think he ever did, though, uh, on the show anyway. We never see the brisket sandwich again. Either way, microwave brisket gives us all the sads. (laughs) Sit down or I'll sit you down. Pastrami sandwich. Ever drive up to Bucky's thinking, yum, pastrami sandwich, here I come. Chen says that the pastrami sandwich he had at Bucky's was one of the best sandwiches I've had since coming to Texas. I've never had their pastrami sandwich. You ever had one of those? I have not. I'm not a pastrami fan. And uh, he's covered a lot of ground since arriving to Texas, so that uh, pastrami sandwich is a real endorsement. The sandwich is a gloppy monster of tender pastrami, juicy fat, peppered bacon, sauerkraut, mustard, and jalapenos. How could you not be a fan after hearing that description? The bun barely holds it all together. Bless its heart. All right, next thing, mix Bucky's lemon cookies with their banana pudding. Chen points out that Bucky's goes hard on whatever flavor they're promoting on the packaging. A container of lemon cookies are also almost too tart to eat on their own, so he drops some in his banana pudding, which he loved already on its own. But with the two uh, together, Chen says, it's like Aladdin and Jasmine together. It's a whole new world. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Bucky's uh, banana pudding. I have not I, had. I have that. to. I have to go in and grab. They they put them in cups. I mean, and you can get a you know a half size cup or a full size cup, and you know I can't just go in there and get a half size cup of banana pudding. <laughs> no, of course not. You know what I like? <laughs> I'm a sucker for the uh, hot nuts. Oh uh, yeah, section because they've got the, the roast. Yeah, uh, pecans and like candy pecans and a f- couple other things there and. Man, it smells good when you walk by it, and you just know it's going to taste good. So I'm always grabbing one of those. All right, next tip, balance overly sweet barbecue sauce with pickled eggs. Whereas the brisket breakfast tacos were bone dry, a brisket sandwich, not the gloved one, was overpowered by barbecue sauce, rendering it too sweet. Chen popped open a jar of Bucky's pickled eggs, which were face-puckering sour, and paired it with a sandwich. He said it works. 
We'll take his word on that one. Order anything with the word beast in it. Chen has a rule when discovering new menus. Always order anything with the word beast. In this case, it was a 17-pound breakfast beast burrito. Seven? What? Yeah. Um, unless this is a typo, it says 17, which was one of the best things he'd eaten there so far, aside from the pastrami. Good Lord. That was just brunch. For round two later in the day, remember that he's there eating at Bucky's the whole day, getting his meals. For round two later in the day, Chen grabbed a shopping cart, which failed to do the first, which he'd failed to do the first time. He loaded up with another 10 pounds of food and this time took it back to his hotel to enjoy the sights and sounds of a nearby river. A Boblinski, a Koblinski by the river is a new Airbnb experience listing. It should be anyway. Chen grabbed a pecan kolache and a sausage, cheese, and jalapeno Koblinski for round two at Bucky's. This is probably the calmest and quietest part of the episode. Time slowed while he was eating the soft, puffy bread that swaddled a sausage and gooey cheese. I could just sit here by the river and slowly stuff my face, Chen says after one bite. I just want to cuddle up with it right or cuddle up with it at night. Oh, he smokes. We've been sleeping at Bucky's. We've been sleeping on Bucky's two dollar cinnamon rolls. When chatting about Bucky's at the office or lake or wherever, have you ever heard anyone say how about their two dollar cinnamon rolls? And now I realize that sometimes it takes an outside perspective to see the forest through the icing. Chen said that the people at the store told him to warm it before eating it, which he did. The soft, pillowy swirl of dough was as big as his face and swimming in warm icing. My new motto is I-B-K-I-T. In Bucky's kitchen, I trust, Chen said. He should run for governor on that platform. He'd win. Next thing, we've also been sleeping on Bucky's fish sandwich. Personally, the fish sandwich looked like the best thing he tried in this feast. I didn't even know they had fish sandwiches. I didn't know that either. This one had a crispy crust wrapped around delicate flakes of white fish. The bread looked not too bready, and the fish rested atop a heap of coleslaw. Who knew? Spotted mosquitoes are dangerous. Next headline. Chen's Riverside Buffet turned on him as the sun set. The eater became the eaten, but he said something interesting. I saw some dangerous-looking mosquitoes. You know, the spotted ones. Well, that's just a little insert there of his experience by the river. Uh, Mike Chen is a beast. Chen topped off his evening marauding with a succulent roast beef sandwich a cheesy jalapeno-laced pulled pork burrito, and a tender fried apple pie. He went bonkers about all of them. The fried pie was covered in sugar and cinnamon, and he said the apples didn't taste manufactured. Even if he only took a few bites of his 36-course tasting meal, he devoured a copious amount of food and never tired. He gave every bite his full beastly attention. So, have you ever had their apple fried uh, apple pie? I have not. No, not either. I wonder how it compares to McDonald's. 
McDonald's was always a go-to. They always asked if you wanted one. Always, yep. They may still do that. I haven't been to McDonald's in quite a while. I don't think they still ask, but I think they still have them. I used to, when I used to order the apple pies, I would get like a, just a small cup of ice cream. Right. And just crush it down into the ice cream. <laughs> yeah, you know me. So. <laughs> I had never done that. That's a great deal. I, I got it. It always smelled good in the bag. And then I'd go in too soon because that filling was hot as blazes. Oh, yeah. And burned my mouth a little bit. I have to wait for it to cool off. But you always got a consistent taste. And I kind of like the crunch on them. I don't know if they were very good for me, but uh, kind of like this. I can't imagine anything that tasted that good was good for you. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. So there's your... Bucky's review, and he tried a lot of stuff. I didn't even know half of these items existed, and I've been into Bucky's quite a bit, so I'm going to have to be a little more observant next time I'm in there. Maybe hit that uh, computer kiosk and really fan through the menus on the uh, computer monitor and see what they've got. So we've got some other big headlines before we get to them and uh, hit the break. S&P 500, astronomical gains year over year, one year apart. It closed Friday at 44.36. A year ago, 33.51. That's a 32% increase in the market. Unbelievable. So market's booming in spite of all this noise about infrastructure and deficit and everything else and Democrats in Texas leaving their uh, post and heading to Washington and disappearing. You've been listening to Dr. Doug Ramsey, so we'll be right back after this break. Hi, it's Doc Thompson for Matthew 25 Ministries. Matthew 25 Ministries is one of the few charities I'll actually endorse because I know them. I've worked with them, and I know almost all of the money that you donate goes to help people. Go to m25m.org, m25m.org. Peter Serafin from Liberty Lighthouse takes a moment to thank Governor Wolf from Pennsylvania for all that he's done for this COVID-19 crisis. Thank you for keeping COVID out of our nursing home. Wait, you didn't do that. I'll skip to the next one. Thank you for protecting small business. You didn't do that either. Thank you for making sure our unemployed workers were able to receive their benefit. Thank you for being ever present to deal with. Thank you for leading by example. Thank you for working with the legislature to get things. Thank you for common sense travel restrictions. Oh, good Lord. Thank you for using science to establish restaurant guidelines. Nah, dang it! At least we have sports. We can enjoy watching a couple hours of high school athletics and forget all of the craziness for a short... Seriously, this is getting ridiculous. Liberty Lighthouse, Saturdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Mojo 5.0. Fast Track Student Loans can get your student loans out of default, stop any wage garnishments, stop collection calls, and stop seizure of your tax refund. Give yourself a break. Stop the stress and get your student loan payments down to as little as $25 a month based on what you can afford to pay 800-709-4395 800-709-4395 800-709-4395 800-709-4395 
Hi, it's Doc Thompson for Matthew 25 Ministries. Matthew 25 Ministries is one of the few charities I'll actually endorse because I know them. I've worked with them, and I know almost all of the money that you donate goes to help people. Go to m25m.org, m25m.org. And welcome back to the Dr. Doc Ramsey Show. Next week, Ron, we've got Matt Sauer from Woolery & Company. Matt Sauer is a corporate and securities lawyer, does a lot of M&A work as well out of New York City. Uh, he's co-founder of Woolery & Company with Jim Woolery, and uh, he's got some great advice on uh, business law, doing deals, and uh, other legal uh, questions that uh, we're going to get answered when he's on the air. All right, here's the net worth of the average American family. Let's dive right into it. Let's see how we rank here. Americans say an average, on average, that it takes a net worth of $2.27 million to be considered wealthy, according to a 2019 survey from Charles Schwab. Net worth means assets minus liabilities. So, net worth. Assets, everything that you have, minus the debt you owe on everything that you have. And that difference is your net worth. Basically, it's the equity value of what uh, what you have. So let's see what we've got here. It includes the value of a person's home, 401k, and any other assets that they may have, minus their debt. How does that compare to the net worth of the typical American family? The average net worth of all U.S. families is $692,100. According to the Federal Reserve's Survey of Consumer Finances, if you look at the median or those at the 50th percentile, the amount is significantly lower. $97,300, and that may be a better gauge since the super rich can pull up the average. The Federal Reserve also looked at the mean and median net worth of U.S. families at different ages and found that median and mean family net worth generally increase with age with a plateau or modest decrease for the oldest age groups relative to the near retirement age groups. Here's the mean net worth of U.S. families based on their age, the head of household. 35 and younger, $76,200. 35 to 44 years old, 288000 45 to 54, so we're going in 10-year blocks now, 728000 bucks. 55 to 64, $1.17 million, 65 to 74, $1.07 million, and 75 and older, also $1.07 million. The median net worth of U.S. families based on age, the median is uh, the following. For anybody 35 or younger is $11,000. 35 to 44 is 59800 the next age group, 45 to 54, it's 124 grand. 55 to 64, it's 187,000. 65 to 74, 224,000. Then 75 and older, it's 264,800. Man, 
So keep in mind, so this mean, what they're talking about is the average. And people that are super wealthy are going to pull the average up. When you're talking about the median, you got half the people above versus half the people below. You're at that 50th percentile. And when you're looking at the median, uh, it's a lot lower than the uh, the average that's getting skewed by the wealthiest folks in each of those brackets. So there you go. You can compare how you rank to that. And that's straight from CNBC. All right, if you need a checkup on your estate planning and your life insurance, make sure you call my good friend, Tony Vaccaro. Tony's at Independent Advanced Planning Group, and he can give you a complimentary review, see if you got everything set up right, see if he has any recommendations to save you some money, restructure things, add some value to your estate. He's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve, so give him a call at 214-837-3512. That's 214-837-3512, or you can get him at www.independentapg. That's independent APG for advanced planning group.com. All right, let's switch gears. And we're going to switch platforms here. Let me jump over to uh, the other set of articles I had pulled up. And I'm going to pull them up again. Let's see. All right, let's start with this one, renewable energy. Ron, big money going into renewables. It's making all the headlines. The Green New Deal, AOC is making a big push, and there's a lot of other talk. But what's really happening in this renewable energy space? The oldest maximum in politics is follow the money. That maxim also applies to electric grids. Following the billions of dollars that have been spent on the Texas grid explains why the state continues to have electricity shortages. On Monday, ERCOT, the state's troubled grid operator, asked Texans to reduce their electricity use. That request came exactly four months after Texas residents were asked to conserve electricity due to a massive winter storm. Before going further, the author is going to give you the punchline. He says, as I explained in these pages in April, about $66 billion, $66 billion was spent on wind and solar in Texas in the years before the deadly. There we go. My time limit's up. All right, we're back in. Um Let's see. Uh, was spent uh, in the years before the deadly February storm that left millions of Texans without electricity. In return for that $66 billion, the wind and solar sectors collected about $21.7 billion in local, state, and federal subsidies and incentives. That first figure comes from the wind energy and solar energy lobbies. The latter number comes from a report published last week by veteran Texas energy analyst Bill Peacock of the Energy Alliance. Thus, for every dollar spent by the wind and solar sectors in Texas, they got roughly 33 cents from taxpayers. By any measure, this is an outrageous level of subsidization. And Texans are learning that the tens of billions of dollars spent on wind and solar are not translating into reliable electricity. 
As you can see in the graphics above, well, you're not going to see these graphics. I can see them. When the power demand in Texas spikes, as it has this week, large segments of the state's vast fleet of wind turbines, some 32,000 megawatts, like to head to Cancun with Senator Ted Cruz for some vacation time. <laughs> so the wind turbines aren't always spinning, Ron. As much as uh, we like to believe they are, they're not, uh, they're not going 24-7. In fact, as I worked on a wind turbine project, studied it some, and uh, talked to Boone Pickens' uh, wind power team, at uh, this is a, a number of years ago, and we looked at a uh, the Wagner Ranch to actually put in a wind and solar farm up there in North Texas. We got the wind maps from General Electric. They supplied them, and it showed the average wind speed and average wind direction for the entire country. So this stuff gets mapped all the time and gets updated, and you have to have a certain minimum amount of average wind just to get those gigantic wind turbine blades to start spinning. You know, because the wind turbine blades, even though they make them out of, you know, light material, it still has weight to it, especially as big as they are. You've seen them, oh, yeah. you know, going up and down I-35 and 45. They are massive. They're on, you know, extended 18-wheeler uh, uh, It probably doubles beds. the length of a standard 18-wheeler, if not more. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. So you have to have this minimum wind speed just to get those things cranking. So they're not always spinning. And that's the point here about uh, the wind turbines head to Cancun. That's a good joke. From ERCOT's website on Wednesday, uh, the electric demand, let's talk about that. Uh, they've got a chart here and they've got a green line that is wind output. And on Monday, when demand was hitting 70,000 megawatts, so imagine this, commercial users, residential, schools, colleges, everybody's pulling, uh, pulling electricity. 70,000 megawatts uh, was the demand level. Wind output dropped to about 3,000 megawatts. So Coming up way short, on Tuesday's power demand was again approaching 70,000 megawatts. Wind energy, energy production dropped to nearly zero. So it's not constant, it's not steady, and that's part of the trick of this electric grid is how are you going to fill in those gaps and make sure you're not uh, having to have rolling brownouts and, and blackouts. Therein lies the biggest challenge facing Texas regulators and policymakers the tax abatements, subsidies, and tax credits that are being doled out at the local, state, and federal levels favor the deployment of intermittent wind and solar. But during times of high demand, wind and solar often disappear, and all the load is expected to be met with traditional generation plants. But those traditional plants, nuclear, coal, and natural gas, don't get the lavish subsidies being given to renewables. Further, these plants aren't as profitable as they used to be because during times of fair weather, good wind and lots of sun, renewables are crowding out the juice that would ordinarily be produced from those traditional plants. 
In his analysis, subsidies to nowhere, a year-by-year estimate of renewable energy subsidy costs for Texas and for the U.S., Peacock says that that Texas is being overrun by renewable energy generation. In 2020 alone, he found that big wind and big solar collected local, state, and federal subsidies worth about $2.3 billion dollars. Further, he found that since 2018, 79% of all the electricity generation capacity built in the state had been from renewables, while only 19% had come from generation that can be dispatched and all that comes from one source, natural gas. The lack of diversity that has resulted from from this over-reliance on renewables has come at a great cost to Texas. Wall Street bankers and investment firms have partnered up with renewable energy companies from all over the world to chase the billions of dollars available if the companies will pick this form of energy favored by politicians and bureaucrats across the globe, including the state of Texas. How costly is the state's lack of generation diversity? As this author reported last week in Forbes, Texas ratepayers are being saddled with about $38 billion in excess costs in the wake of the deadly February winter storms that killed at least 200 Texans. So, Ron, I mean, you had a really bad experience where you lived and you were blacked out for days. Five, Five days, yeah. I mean, that's just brutal. Now, translate that, and they're finally figuring out the economic impact. Tax or ratepayers, well, we effectively taxpayers, ratepayers, everybody that's buying electricity now is having to cover the losses. $38 billion in excess costs. Unbelievable. It's just huge. Peacock said that wind and solar developers in Texas get a third of their money from the government. That's a nice deal. Like to get that, get some of that. He then said the reason the state isn't building more gas-fired power plants is simple: Wall Street investors aren't getting a third of the money they need for those plants from taxpayers. So it's all incentive-based. Where the money goes is what's going to get built, or where the money gets uh, gets supplied to. And in this case. It's going to renewables because it's the hottest thing out there. The big word about ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. It's a big focus. You've got a lot of traditional oil and gas companies, especially the majors that are publicly saying they may be out of fossil fuels altogether in the next 10, 15, 20 years, and they're investing tons of money in renewables, but they're getting these subsidies. You know, for peak generation, and you've got the gas-powered plants, it's getting costlier to produce that electricity out of the gas-fired generators, and you've got less and less gas getting produced and getting supported. So it's uh, it's a recipe for longer-term problems. I think uh, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Got to keep an eye on that for sure. All right, let's talk about a little cryptocurrency. We've talked about that subject a few times, but got a really interesting article here that is worth talking about. So Ethereum. Ron, let's check the, uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. 
Let's look at the price of some of the uh, cryptos. If I can find my app. Coinbase, here we go. See what we got. Let's see if it'll pull it up. Ah, it wants me to re-log in. It did a uh, application update. So, Bitcoin, most famous, everybody's heard of that. Elon Musk talks about it. He was taking payment in Bitcoin for Tesla's. Went away from that for a while. Probably going to fire it back up, according to him. Ethereum, it's another cryptocurrency. Let's see what's up with Ethereum. Somewhat buried in Ethereum's big software makeover that rolled out Thursday is a code update known as Ethereum Improvement Proposal 3554, or EIP 3554 for short. It threatens to hasten the end of Ethereum mining as we know it. So what are we talking about? Since its launch, the Ethereum community has talked about overhauling the way that it mints Ether, which is the token associated with the Ethereum blockchain. But getting people to make the change is going to require a push, and that push is something known as a difficulty bomb. Uh, You know, I've never heard of this term difficulty bomb, but I had a week where I was getting a lot of difficulty bombs this past week. So, Uh, I'm starting to uh, understand the phrase, Ron. It's a mechanism in Ethereum that makes it exponentially harder to mine, said Tim Baiko, the coordinator for Ethereum's protocol developers. It's like we're artificially adding miners on the network, which raises the difficulty, making it harder for every other miner that's on the network to actually mine a block. So you've got all these computer banks. We've talked about this and China cracked down, driving a lot of the Chinese miners over here to the U.S., particularly in Texas, because you've got cheaper sources of energy, though it looks like it's fairly unreliable with the renewables, but still cheaper. And they've got these banks and banks of computers and they're running algorithms and they're trying to mine either bitcoins or in Ethereum's case, they're mining Ether, and for every one of those, it's got certain value. That value fluctuates just like the value of the dollar relative to other currencies from hour to hour, day to day. And what they're doing here with this difficulty bomb is they change up uh, the environment where it looks like you've added a bunch more miners, a bunch more people with computers uh, cranking out the algorithm trying to mine these limited amount of of coins. Well, it's an artificial uh, approach to do that. So this Ethereum improvement proposal moves up the de- detonation date of that difficulty bomb by six months to December Once it goes off, it will essentially make Ethereum unminable. So if you invested a lot of money in setting up your Ethereum mining operation, it's going to become prohibitively costly with this difficulty bomb. So cryptocurrencies such as Ethereum and Bitcoin regularly get flack for the process of mining, which is how new coins are generated. Both currently use a so-called proof-of-work mining model where machines solve complex math equations to create 
these new coins. However, this effort requires significant energy to power the computers used to perform the calculations, which has drawn criticism from outsiders concerned about energy shortages and carbon emissions. The Ethereum community has coalesced around the idea of migrating from proof of work, which it is now, to proof of stake, which requires users to leverage their existing cash of Ether as a means to verify transactions and mint new tokens. This will still limit the amount of new coin created, but without requiring the energy used to run massive banks of computers to solve math equations. So, Ron, you're a computer guy. Um, can you explain cash uh, as it relates to a, a, a PC or a computer? I have no idea, Doug, how that works. <laughs> None. So cash, I, if I understand it right, it's using some of that memory in the background inside of that PC as a, um, to run these. Well, yeah, it's it, 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 so... so. Cash, as in C A C H E, cash. Yes. Is yeah. It's it's basically memory stored in the RAM, and so it just allows you to access things a lot faster. Uh, you know that than 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 having to go to the hard drive that's spinning to pull it off the hard drive every time you want to access it. So it's just a much faster way to to access the memory. Yeah, and their point here is that by relying on the cash more than having to hit the hard drive, you're going to cut down on the energy com- consumption to a point. So they're trying to internalize it a little bit more. In, in ice. Yeah, and a lot of these machines use the spinning hard drives, which is normal for everybody. A lot of newer machines are going to what are called SSDs, solid-state drives, that are more like static memory, and they can access just like you do RAM. So it's right. very, very quick, uh, thereby reducing the energy. Well, and, and yeah. this game is all about power consumption and the cost of, of that, how much you use and what it costs you, because it's a margin game. So if you know what your Bitcoin that you just mined is worth, and then you know how much power it took to mine it and the cost of that power, it's it's a spread game, Right. Just the difference between the value of the coin and uh, the cost of the power, and then any other overhead. So you may have to pay rent for the building. You've got somebody there that's kind of watching your over your computer, so you got some labor in there as well. But the big cost component is going to be your power consumption. So Bico tells CNBC the original proposal required these so-called validators to have fifteen hundred ether a stake now worth around $4.2 million. To lower the barrier to entry, the new proof-of-stake proposal would require interested users to have only 32 or about 90000 bucks. Boy, I'd love to have 1,500 Ether, $4.2 bucks. That's, uh, that's a pretty good haul. While you don't need a bomb to go off to roll out proof-of-stake mining, it certainly helps move things along by closing the on-ramp to proof-of-work mining. Bica calls it more of a stopgap measure. In essence, the point of the difficulty bomb is to force miners and node operators to upgrade their software after a predetermined amount of time has passed. According to Nick Carter, Castle Island Ventures general partner and CoinMetrics co-founder, in December, if the deadline for detonation isn't pushed back, 
the bomb will go off and you'll see another parabolic rise in difficulty like the ones that are in this chart that I'm looking at. So they've had a couple of bombs, difficulty bombs go off in the past and it drove the cost up because it uh, the block time in seconds was forced to go up. So you had to improve your technology, get faster computers, more efficient computers. And so it's kind of an interesting concept because Ethereum's forcing you to keep up with the computer technolo- technology. And a lot of big firms, they have end-of-life cycles on their computer hardware uh, and equipment anyway. Where, And I'll give you an example. One of the companies I was at, our IT policy was that every PC got replaced every three years, no matter what's going on. Even if the box is still running fine, we always put in a new box, new PC uh, at the end of three years and just said that's an end-of-life policy that we established. While the upgrade to Ethereum 2.0 has a lot of backers, not everyone is happy about the change. There are some miners who are against it, but it's in their financial interest to be against it, said Baiko. Once the protocol has fully migrated to a proof-of-stake model, there won't be any revenue to be made from Ethereum mining. At that point, miners have a few options for what to do next. There are a lot of other chains that support GPU-based mining, so miners could simply choose to start mining other cryptocurrencies. They could also decide to just shut down mining operations entirely and sell their mining equipment. Bico expects to see a lot of that. We've also seen many mining farms and mining pools on Ethereum start to get into staking, he said. So there you go, Ron. It's not as easy as it looks. You see the volatility in the cryptocurrencies. It goes up. And when Bitcoin is running up, everybody's trying to jump in. More and more people jump in. I mean, there are SPACs. I know a one SPAC that was done recently. And remember, a SPAC is where you got a company with a pile of money and it merges with a typically a private company. And in this case, it was a Bitcoin mining operation, private company, and they took it public via the SPAC merger. And that cash and trust from the SPAC is funding the expansion of this mining operation. I mean, they're building up giant, giant mining farms, you know, and you don't need a whole lot of fancy buildings, you need a nice big warehouse, you got to make sure it can manage IT equipment. So usually you got to keep it cool and all that, but pretty fascinating where this is going. And it looks like governments and in our case in the US, the SEC is now starting to build regulations around uh, those mining operations. So I don't know if you got time outside of Romica, but you might become a miner as well, Ron. Could be a good <laughs> way to about go. It, but I've seen those banks and banks of computers <laughs> running too. Uh, it's a big investment to get going. No question about it, but uh, really, really fascinating. All right, so next week, as I mentioned, Matt Sauer, Woolery & Company, great law firm, boutique law firm, uh, happens to be uh, the law firm that we use at, at Breeze. Uh, Going to have some really good insight into legal issues and We'll answer some 
questions as well about uh, business law and uh, M&A and contracts and so forth. And then next up, who do we have next up on the uh, show lineup here today? At the mic with Keith Malinak. All right. Stay tuned for that. Going to be another great show uh, from Keith. And that's it. We've hit the end of the hour and uh, super excited about uh, how things went today, Ron. I mean, there's a lot of good headlines. Watch those airlines. Not sure if anybody's getting refunds from Spirit, so got to be a little careful there. Don't always go for the budget airline because you uh, you can pay the consequences uh, after the fact. So keep an eye out for uh, high quality and high value. You've been listening to the Dr. Doug Ramsey Show. Remember, you can't make dough without Doug. We'll see you next week with Matt Sauer. the seditious, rabble-rousing, liberty-loving, home of fun, entertaining, and compelling talk. Mojo 5 